0: Pastor Bill will be sharing the message today on serving God's people, uh, based on 2 Timothy, chapter one, verses one to seven. Again, that's 2 Timothy, chapter one, one to seven. I'll read the passage for us. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in prayer, in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now, I am sure, dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Good morning. It's good to be back with you all this morning. Sally and I were away last week, um, although you were in great hands. Uh, if, if you have not had a chance to listen to the sermon that Nick preached, um, let me urge you. It, it was very convicting, very challenging for me personally. If you've not had a chance to listen to that, please go uh, up on the podcast and, and do so. And if you were here last week, you might want to go up on the podcast and listen to it again. I really think it was that good. We are starting a new Sunday morning teaching series today for the summer where we're going to go through the book of Second Timothy. This is the last letter that the Apostle Paul wrote shortly before his death, and it's a little bit like a baton pass in a relay. Paul is writing to a younger man, Timothy, who has worked alongside him in ministry. And Timothy is very special to Paul, both personally and as a ministry partner. In another letter to the Philippian church, Paul writes this in chapter 219, that he hopes to send Timothy to them soon because he has no one else like him, no other ministry partner like Timothy, who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. How, as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. So, what is it that's so special about Timothy? He's not motivated by what he can get out of people, he's not looking for his own fame. His own wealth, his own power. Instead, he cares about what Christ cares about. He's motivated as he thinks about what the church needs by what Christ thinks the church needs. And in that sense, there is a connection, a kinship between he and Paul, him and Paul. They're family in this sense. They're working together for the same goals. One older father figure, mentor, one younger partner, a spiritual son, but they both have the same passions and goals. And so as we read this letter this summer, you're going to hear some of Paul's personal love for Timothy come through. You're going to see, hear his desire to see him again. But he's also thinking as a ministry partner. He knows, Paul knows that he's not going to be around much longer. And so he wants to make sure that Timothy stays focused on what he needs in order to carry out the work of the church. Paul sees a number of things that the church is facing, both internal challenges and external ones. They've and 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 he wants Timothy ready to deal with those. And that's the payoff for us at Renewal, because those internal and external challenges have not changed since Paul and Timothy's day. Our lives look very different in the modern world, but when you scratch below the surface differences of language, of culture, we still face the same issues both inside and outside the church. And so this letter is not just a baton pass to Timothy it's also to us. If we are going to be concerned about the interests of Christ in the Philadelphia region, this letter that we need to take to heart. Now let me point us to two resources that you could use, either personally or as a family during the week before Sunday so that you are more familiar with the text by the time that you get here on Sunday. And the first one that I would recommend is called Paul for Everyone, the Pastoral Letters for everyone the pastoral letters it's by a man named tom wright some of you may know him by nt wright same guy wright is both a pastor and a scholar but he writes a very accessible commentary series he's now written one on every book in the new testament and in each one of these he takes a very short passage from scripture introduces it with a story or illustration and then unpacks it in about three pages and looking at the size of the book you realize they're very short pages, so he moves pretty quickly and then goes to the next section. Will this give you an exhaustive understanding of the passage? No. What it will give you is a sense of the main points and an idea of how they hang together. An added bonus with Wright's commentary is that we're using the same chapter and verse breakdowns on Sunday that he used in his book, and so you're going to be able to easily figure out from the passage that we just preached on what the next section is that we're doing the following Sunday now if you're like me and my family you struggle to have a devotional time as a family and if that's the case then let me suggest that you try doing this together because Wright does not write that's awkward he doesn't write like a scholar he writes devotionally each section is short enough you could read an entire one right after dinner uh, in the middle of the week sometime. So before the Sunday, pick like Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Read through this. There's no real work that you have to do. It's all there for you. And maybe there's enough provocative that gets you having a conversation. Maybe not. But at the very least, it'll help you be that much more ready to come on learn together on Sunday with the rest of God's people. So that's Paul for Everyone, the pastoral epistles by Tom Wright. My second suggestion would be and Timothy for you by Philip Jensen. That's 1st and 2nd Timothy for you by Philip Jensen. Jensen also writes as a pastor and scholar. So again, somebody who really understands the text but communicates it in a way that's simple. Here's the difference. With Wright's book, you're gonna get more of the big picture of the text. Jensen is gonna take you more verse by verse. Again, he's not boring, he's not technical. He's a little more matter of fact. Book, you can tell, is also very short uh, and so you might want to get, consider getting both and reading them together because I think they'll complement each other. Again, that's First and Second Timothy for you by Philip Jensen. All right, turning to our passage for today. We're looking at three things in our passage that help us take our place in this baton pass, help us take our place in serving God's people. So first we're going to see what our motivation is for serving in the church. Second, what our qualifications are to serve in the church. And third, the resources that we need for serving. So three things today, what motivates us to serve, what qualifies us to serve, and the resources that we need in order to serve. Let's dive in. As we read through 2 Timothy this summer, you're going to see that Paul is really going through it. Chapter 2, 9, he's in prison again. This is the second time that he's been arrested by Rome. The first time was not all that bad. He was under house arrest. He rented out his own home. This time, however, he's in prison, literally chained up. He's in chains, and there is a stigma attached to him this time that wasn't there before. Before, in the book of Acts, people visited him. Now, chapter 1, verse 15, almost everyone has deserted him. They're ashamed of him, afraid of being identified with him. Even those who are close to him, chapter 410, have left him on his own, and so he would like to see Timothy, he'd like to have a little bit of friendship. And chapter 413, he'd like Timothy to bring his coat, which tells you that he's cold. Okay, do you have the picture there of what this looks like? There's Paul, probably sitting on the ground, in chains, shivering all alone. And chapter 4-6, this looks like it's the end. He doesn't expect to be set free like he was last time. He expects that he's going to be killed. He's being squeezed really hard. Now, do you remember our series in the winter on worship and then suffering? Where we learned that suffering doesn't make us do anything. It doesn't cause us to do what we do. But it does squeeze us so that what's in our hearts, what, what we most rely on, what we most value, that that comes out. It comes out in what we say, it comes out in what we do, and the stress of that moment strips away everything else except what is most important to us. In that sense, suffering doesn't cause us to do anything, but it reveals what we think we have to have in life. It shows us, it shows everyone around us, what's going on inside of us, it shows us what we worship. So. Question, what, what do you see then when Paul is squeezed? Here's what you don't see you don't see him angry or outraged, complaining about how unfair this all is. You don't see him standing on his rights, demanding that he have better treatment. But he's also not depressed not self-pitying not withdrawing into himself he's not anxious he's not worried he's not consumed with a future that he can't control can't make himself stop thinking about it Instead, what does paul do he he writes a letter he's sitting there not consumed with himself he's sitting there thinking about his friend and he's thinking about the larger church he's thinking about what his friend needs in order to serve the larger church He expects in that moment that the church is going to have a future even if he doesn't and he expects that timothy needs to step up if he's going to care well for that future church and so out of a love for others paul writes a letter in a cold dark prison cell as he faces his own execution not focused on himself not focused on his own circumstances he's focused on what God is focused on Paul in that moment is concerned about Christ's interests concerned that God's people live faithful lives and that they have what they need in order to live faithfully when you squeeze Paul what you see at the core of his being the the last thing that he holds on to when everything else is taken away is a love for God and what God loves a love for his people And as I've meditated on this, I I thought, man, we could probably spend the entire message right here. I think back to a couple years ago. I think, what, what, what did we learn about the American church during the pressure of COVID? As we got squeezed, we learned that the church in America is not all that different from the rest of the country. We wore out just as quickly as everyone else. We complained just as much. We were as scared of dying as everyone else. We withdrew into ourselves. Others of us got super belligerent. In general, the American church was not a beacon of light, not a beacon of joy and strength in a really dark time. Nor were we a voice of reason and stability, a demonstration of sacrificial love during all the social unrest. We didn't show that we are citizens of a bigger and better kingdom than any that you find here on Earth. We didn't show that we take our marching orders of justice and mercy from a bigger and better king. That the church actually has the answer to ethnic tensions because our king has a solution to personal and individual hatred. We didn't show that we have all those answers whether there's a pandemic or not. Whether it's suddenly popular or not to have answers. We got squeezed. The American church got squeezed when we faced the possibility of death and unrest. I'm not making light of the very real threat that we all went through. I'm not making light of the lives of friends and family that we lost. But hear this. Paul in that cell is not facing the possibility of death. He's facing the certainty of it. And yet he's not collapsing in on himself. He is a beacon of light and joy in a dark world. He's moving outward, which is what you and I have to learn to do as well. But we're only going to do that if we have the same confidence that Paul had. And he tells us what that confidence is in verse 1. He says that he is an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. See, that's the key. God has promised him life, the kind of life that is in Christ Jesus, which means what? Right now in his cold prison cell, when everyone else has abandoned him, Jesus hasn't, and it means that Jesus never will. Because Jesus rose again from the dead. Because Jesus is alive right now, Jesus is always going to be there with Paul, and Paul, one day, will rise too. And so while he's in that prison cell, he knows he has a future life that's guaranteed to him, regardless of what happens to him here. And that promise of life, relationship with Christ right now, that will continue forever, that promise of life then changes how he lives in the present even when his circumstances are awful. Now why does that make a difference? Because how you live now really does depend on what you think this promise of life is in the future. What do I mean by that? There are essentially three primary ways that people think about the future, about life after death. They either think that there is no future, or they think that there is some kind of consolation in the future, or they think that there is restoration. Three ways that people think about the future, that change, how they live in the present. For instance, if you think that there is no future life, that once you die, it's all over, that here is all there is, then that means that any time you suffer loss here, you lose your health, your finances, relationships, any time you suffer loss here, it's permanent. you're you're, you're not getting it back. And so you have to maintain an iron grip, a death grip, an anxious grip on everything that you have because once it's gone, it's gone. That's if you don't believe there's life after death. Or there are people who think that the next life is a consolation for this one. That it's a consolation for what you lose in this life consolation for how hard this life is that somehow the future will make up for the hardships here that's the kind of thinking that gets religion categorized as the opiate of the masses it's the thinking that says okay you you didn't get yours here but just wait stay in your lane don't make waves you can have it later because the future will make up for the suffering and the bad breaks that you caught here what's wrong with that kind of thinking It's that it still takes this life as normative. And it still leaves you trying to hold on to this life so that you can get as much happiness from it as you can. So that whatever sadness you have here, your promise that happiness will make up for this sadness. Third way of thinking about the future. What scripture says God offers is restoration. Restoration of life, of all your life. Restoration so that you don't simply get back what you lost, but so that you get what you never had. And a restoration that you don't simply have to wait for, but that you start experiencing, enjoying right now, this promise of life right now in this present. Let me give you an example, and maybe it'll be a little clearer. I was talking last week with a good friend of mine who has Parkinson's. And he's now had it long enough that he is processing it reflecting on it not just adjusting to it and he kept saying things like yeah here's what life was like before my brain and my body got broken kept referencing the time before he was aware of the disease this was the pre-broken time of his life as opposed to his current broken phase of life and at one point i interrupted him i said actually um you've always been broken Now, you know, you only say that to somebody who really trusts you, right? I said, you've always been broken. Ever since you were conceived, you have only ever lived with a broken body. A broken brain, a broken nervous system, a broken body that's never worked the way that a human body was initially originally designed to work. You have never had a single moment where you did not experience the fall of humanity into sin in some way in your body. But there's a day coming, I said, when your brain is going to work (laughs) in ways that you have never imagined, in ways that you can't begin to imagine why. It's broken. You have no idea what that future is going to be. In other words, what did I say to him? I said, don't cling wistfully to, here's what I lost. Instead, look forward to what I will have. Not have back, (laughs) but what I will have that I never did. Believe that God has promised you restored life in Christ Jesus, a resurrection body, and let that life, that promise, reshape how you live and talk in the present. Because seriously, what's your hope? To get back your former broken brain? Think <laughs> No, I don't, I don't want that back. I want what I never had. Your hope, brothers and sisters, is to be restored, not consoled. That's what God promises And when your hope is set on that kind of life, it changes how you live. You're not consumed with what you lost, dwelling on it endlessly. You're not fearful of what else you might lose. You're not clinging to what you have. And you're not absorbed by what you haven't yet had. You're not endlessly pursuing new experiences because if you don't have them now, you never will. Instead, you're more relaxed. You can hold your life You can hold your possessions a little more loosely because Christ has promised to restore to you to what you never had in the first place. And so you're more at peace when the world around you is losing its mind because there's nothing that happens here that can jeopardize your future. You have a promise. You can think clearly then. You can zero in and focus on what is essential on how you can impact the people around you for good. Because your mind is not full of fog, it's not flooded with the noise of, oh, I don't have this thing right now, I don't have a relationship, I don't have a a, a fantastic career, I don't have an amazing vacation. This thing that I lost, or this thing that I never experienced, I have to have that thing now or life won't be worth living. This pushes all that out so that you can think clearly now. Because Jesus promises a fully restored life. One where you're not going to miss out on anything. Even if you don't have it in this life. That promise of life does what? It lets you sit down alongside the Apostle Paul. On the cold floor, in prison, chained like an animal, deserted by all of your friends. And still think about others. And about what they need without bitterness or self-pity that's point one that's what motivates us to serve others point two what qualifies us though to serve and this is important because maybe you're thinking to yourself right now well okay i can see that maybe i've pulled back a little bit maybe been too concerned about this life and about what i lose but bill (laughs) what what does the rest of the book have to do with me i am certainly not the apostle paul and i'm no timothy either Someone handpicked by the apostle to continue his work in the church. Not some kind of super Christian. At best, I'm average. On a good day. What does this book have to do with me? Now listen, I am am right there with you. The longer that I know the Lord, the more things I see in me daily that I'm not proud of. Things that make me think I'm way below average. I am certainly no Timothy. Timothy. I'm not just saying that for the sake of saying it. I I really believe that. So why should any of us then bother studying this book together? It's because of the logic that you find in the opening verses. Follow it with me here. Paul says, verse 3, I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. Okay? Hold that verse in your mind, skip down to verse five, where he continues I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. Do you hear the parallel that he's drawing there? Says verse three I serve God as did my ancestors. They and I are of the same faith, and I serve God with a clear conscience. My faith is genuine. Verse 5, Timothy, so is yours. You have sincere faith. I saw it in your grandmother and in your mother. I saw it in your ancestors, and now I'm certain you have it too. I have genuine, sincere faith. You have the same genuine, sincere faith. And so, verse 6, for this reason, what reason? Because of our shared, genuine faith. For this reason, I remind you, to fan and to flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. You see his logic there? Because you have genuine faith like I do, you need to work hard to use this gift that God has given you for the sake of his people with the implication like I do. The rationale of why we use the gifts that God has given us for the sake of his people, why we serve, is because we've been given a genuine, sincere faith. Now, it's easy here to get hung up on exactly what is this gift, and and don't get hung up there because the passage doesn't tell you. Scripture doesn't tell you somewhere else about this moment that Paul's talking about. But when you keep reading verse 7, it's clear that this gift has something to do with the spirit that God has given to Timothy, and that the spirit brings things to Timothy, power, love, self-control, and those things are exactly what Timothy needs so that he can serve the church. And so paul is urging timothy not to sit back not to be content with what he's already had from god not to be content that he already put christ's interests ahead of his own in the past but keep being at work fan into flame the gift that god's given him in order to serve the church well and you remember again the basis for him doing that the thing that qualifies him to use this gift Is that he and paul share the same faith they both rely on god to save his people they both rely on god to do whatever is necessary to restore them to this life that they never had and it's that faith that sincere genuine faith that's the reason now for why timothy should work hard to serve the church and in that sense we should probably say it's more than a basis for serving the church it's actually an expectation paul's arguing here that since we share the same faith that brings us into the family god's family into the church then we also share the same responsibility for that family same responsibility to use our gifts well make sure you're using your gift well timothy to serve the family god's made part us part of so our faith both qualifies us to serve and it obligates us to serve It's the thing that opens the door, that gives us an opportunity to serve. It's the thing that creates responsibility for us serving. It's our privilege. Let me say it this way. It's our duty. And this is really important for us to hear in the modern Western world because we are so used to thinking in terms of what the sociologists call differentiation. We are so used to thinking that each area of our life has become so complex Medicine, science, technology, counseling, teaching, so complex that there's very little overlap between them. They're differentiated. And so we have created an expert class in each area. Smaller number of people who know more and can do more than anyone else. And they are that expert class while the rest of us pull back and defer to the experts defer to such an extent that we assume we really shouldn't mess around, muck about in other people's areas, because we're just going to end up messing things up. So, for instance, very few people work on their own cars anymore because cars just got too complicated. You have to know too much, you have to have too many specialized tools, and so when your car doesn't run like you think it should, you take it to an expert. That's how we live in all of our modern world, and we bring that same attitude then into the church. And we expect the religious professionals to take on the majority of the responsibility of serving in the church. (laughs) You start reading scripture and you realize God doesn't think like that. Instead, he expects his people to be 100% invested in the life of his family. He expects that each one of us, each one of you, me, become experts in what he thinks in how he wants us to live, and that we then get involved to use what he's taught us to impact each other's lives. And so, for instance, he thinks Genesis 18, verses 17 to 19, that parents are the primary pastors of their children, that parents are the experts in applying his word to the lives and to the hearts of their children and not some professional religious person. Or he thinks Romans 15, 14, that it's the whole church who is able to know and apply his word to each other, to instruct each other, and not just some expert class in the church. He thinks that inside the church we should be able, 1 Corinthians 6, 4, to judge disputes inside of the church and not rely on experts from outside to tell us what is right and wrong. He thinks that we are able to take care of the physical needs of his community, Acts 6, 3, not rely on government or governmental programs to do so. He thinks that he has gifted each congregation titus 1:5) with competent elders who should do the work of leading and caring for his family and he thinks first peter 4 10 11 that every single person in his family has some gift from him that is needed by the larger community god gives his people everything that they need all the expertise that they need to be a healthy functioning community And therefore, those gifts come with his expectation that his people will use their gifts to build that healthy community. He expects each person to fan into flame what he's given them for the sake of serving the needs of the larger congregation. And that's something that we have to take here, take to heart here at Renewal some of us have been serving for a long time sunday school teachers cg leaders some of us need to take a rest and that's a great thing as a church you realize that we are now large enough that some people are able to take a very much needed rest going into this next year but rest is for what rest is so that you can then get back into the game it's not for the purpose of watching others in the game I have no interest in trying to guilt anyone into serving if you're watching now or if you've been watching. Guilt is not ever how God motivates his people. But let me say it this way. If you have been watching and are content to keep on watching, even though you're rested, it's time to get back into the game because it's where you belong. It's what you've been gifted for. You were not gifted by God to sit on the sidelines and watch others serve. And this is not just for people of a certain age, this is for teens, this is for our children. We are a community where everyone serves. We need that now as renewal and we're gonna need that for the future. If you recall, we just went through a vision series here where we were realizing That in order to be most effective we need to build multiple local communities that means at some point in the future as renewal keeps growing we're looking to plant a church to become two communities not just one that means we're going to need people to serve to be participant we're going to need help with praise on sunday morning honestly if you talk to the praise teams now you realize we need that help now if you're rested and have abilities in praise we could use that we're definitely going to need that in the future we're going to need teachers to help our children and youth cg leaders additional elders additional deacons and deaconesses we're all going to need to participate it really does matter where you are in your life stage that changes how much ability you have to serve but to the extent that you can you need to use your gifts you need to fan your gifts into flame. So we can serve this part of the Philadelphia suburbs. Because if you share this faith that brings you into God's family, you also share the responsibility for helping the family to be as strong as we can be. That's point two, what qualifies you to serve. Point three, the resources we need for serving. Verse seven, for God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Now, notice first what God does not give you to serve his people. He does not give you a position or a title, something that you could put in an organizational chart that tells people what your job does and doesn't do. And he doesn't give you strategies or techniques. Doesn't send you off to leadership development class or have you take a course in serving 101. It's kind of what we look for in the modern world, right? A a position that everyone recognizes that gives you permission to serve And a fistful of ideas that you can pull out at a moment's notice. God doesn't do that. He gives something different. He gives you a spirit of power, of love, and of self-control. God gives you abilities, not positions or strategies. Supernatural abilities to impact his people and this world like he would. What are those? He gives you power. He gives you the ability to enter into a situation and make a difference in that situation. He gives you the ability to get things done, the ability to say or do things that other people find attractive, that they find that they want to work with and follow along with. He gives you power. But he doesn't give you raw, naked power. Instead, he gives you love to inform the power that you have. Love that shapes the power so that it helps someone rather than hurts them. Love that directs your power for someone else's benefit. Love that keeps you thinking, how can I use the power that I have to make someone else's life better instead of just using power selfishly to get what you want? He gives you power, he gives you love, and he gives you self-control. Now, the Greek word there that's translated self-control is actually a little more nuanced than that. That's why you'll find it translated in a variety of ways in other versions. It has the sense here of having control over your own thoughts and actions, so that you're not just reacting to various situations, but so that you're in control of what you do and say, so that you use the power that you have constructively. You don't just let that power explode out of you in random directions whenever you feel triggered. God gives you power, love, and self control. And it's these things that stand opposed verse 7 to fear god didn't give you a spirit of fear god does not make his children timid instead he gives you power love and self-control so that you can enter into areas where you're tempted to retreat tempted to pull back and he gifts you with the ability to step into them trusting that he will give you what you need in that moment to accomplish his purposes in whatever that situation is. All right, that's a little vague. What's that look like? Let me give you two examples of what this could mean. First, what does this mean for leading and serving in the church? It means that you learn to initiate. You learn to initiate. You look around for how you can make a difference. One of the good things about us at Renewal that I've noticed over the past several years is that if somebody asks us to do something specific, we are very willing to jump in and do it that's commendable we are very willing to serve when we're invited the other side of that place where we probably need to grow some is that it's too easy for many of us to sit back and wait to be invited we look too little to initiate we look for permission Now that makes sense if you're used to thinking like a modern person who's waiting for the church experts to get involved because you don't want to make a mistake. But it does not make sense if God says that he gives you the power, the love, and the self-control to make a difference in an area where you see that the church needs to grow. And so some of us need to grow as CG leaders, youth teachers, volunteers, and be a little less afraid of making mistakes. Not be timid but take initiative. Step into new responsibilities, into each other's lives so we take more ownership of our church together. And I can hear somebody asking, well, how do you do that? That's asking for permission. That's not asking God, what have you gifted me with? See, if you ask God to show you areas where renewal needs to grow, I am 100% certain he will answer that prayer. He will show you and i'm 100 certain he'll give you the power love and self-control that you need to help us grow that's one area where we can be tempted to fear and hold back from serving here's another it's in the area of parenting and i want to talk about parenting for just a moment because the way that we parent is a crucial way crucial part of serving god's people See, our families are what? They are smaller parts of God's family. They are one of the first places where we practice using the gifts that God has given to us. Now, I know that in every group of parents that there are some who are too aggressive, some who misuse the power they have, who need to have more of God's love and self-control added to their power. So if that's you, work more on the love and self-control side. But for many of us, we're probably more timid as parents than we should be. I was reading an article by a teacher a couple weeks back who's leaving San Francisco, because the dynamic in the classroom, in his opinion, makes it impossible to do any real teaching. He said a number of things that were very challenging, helpful. One, especially, was he pointed to the issue of how parents are raising their children. And that that how that has an impact then on how their children relate to other authority figures in their lives. And the phrase that really caught my attention went something like this children are taught now to be offended. To take offense. And parents are taught. Not to offend. I think his analysis is spot on children are taught to be offended parents are taught not to offend. And so we are in the process of creating an entire society of parents who work very hard not to offend their children. Who in a very real sense look for permission from their children to parent them. Who are afraid to challenge their children. Afraid to set boundaries for them. Afraid to set expectations of them. Who end up being bullied in their own homes. Who are afraid to set meaningful disciplines when their child refuses to listen to them. Afraid to unplug their child's devices, afraid to reset the internet password, to take their headphones, to stop paying for the phone, who just go along with how the child wants to behave and then let them run the house, set the tone of the house. Parents, please hear this. You are not parents because your children voted for you. You are not parents because your children like you, or necessarily like your parenting. You're not parents because they decided to let you parent them. In fact, you being their parent has nothing to do with them. It's entirely because you have been given a sacred trust from God to be their parent in the way that he's called you to be their parent. He gave you that trust because he thought your child needed a parent. He thought out of all the billions of people on this planet who have ever lived now or ever, or ever will, he thought you would be the very best person to parent this one who's in your home. And so you are not asking your child to agree with you. Your child does not have God's permission to run your home or tell you what to do. Your children are full participants in your family, but they did not establish your family. They don't work to support your home. That means that while they are living with you, they need to get on board with what you believe to the best of your ability, what you believe is best and right before God. And sure, you can discuss that. You can go back and forth together. But the purpose of the discussion is not for them to endlessly challenge you. But it's so that you can both better understand what God has given them in you as a parent. Because at the end of the day, you're the parent and they're not. Why? Because that's what God decided. That means that God has given you the power to be their parent. The power to construct a home for them. And he's given you love so that what you construct has the possibility of benefiting everyone in the home. And he's given you self-control so that you don't simply react to your children if and when they disrespect you, but so that you parent them well, that you enter into their lives so that they enter well into the home that you're building for them. He's given you the ability to initiate, to step into your child's life for their good, to accomplish his purposes. And when you don't feel like doing that, then his call to you is to fan into flame what he's given you. To go back to him and to ask him for more of his spirit because you don't have the option of checking out of letting your child parent him or herself because that is not what god has called you to do he's not called parents to check out in their families he's not called any of us to check out in the church and that's where this can start to sound heavy to all of us (laughs) like it's a new burden that you and i have to carry an obligation, another demand on your time, on what you want to do with your life when it seems like you already have too much to do. Read the book of Second Timothy this week. Do it in one sitting. It'll, it will not take you 10 minutes. Read it. And you'll realize very quickly that Paul does not ever sound burdened. Doesn't sound weighed down. He's cold, imprisoned, chained, abandoned. Yes, he is not burdened doesn't come across as someone who feels imposed upon, put out by needing to take his place in serving God's people. Why is that? Because he's captured by someone who wasn't weighed down, wasn't burdened by taking him on. Jesus didn't feel like it was a miserable burden to serve Paul, didn't wish that he could just do something else with his life, Instead, we read in Hebrews 12, too, that for the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. In order to take Paul on, to serve Paul, Jesus had to go to the cross. But he didn't go to the cross driven by duty or obligation. He went there driven by joy. He went there because there was something on the other side of the cross something that he could only have by going through the cross and that something was the joy of having his people with him forever as he takes his place alongside his father it's the only thing that he did not have in heaven before coming to earth it's the only thing that he got after dying and rising on the cross Jesus could not have Paul, could not have you or me, unless our sin was judged and paid for. And so Jesus went to the cross to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. He went to serve us. He used his power against sin, not against us. He did that because of his love for us. He did that in such a way, controlling his wrath, directing it against his enemy, sin and evil, not against us. Jesus did not enjoy the cross, but he went through it to get to the joy on the other side. And it's that future joy of being with his people that didn't take, just take Jesus to the cross, but it brought him first to the earth. And you can sense that that was that joy that then impacted his life. Read Jesus' life, and you will not come away thinking, man, what, what a cranky, depressed Eorish kind of person he was. Someone who just felt obligated to help people when he didn't really want to. You won't feel that. Instead, what comes across is that he loved serving, loved giving himself to people, loved giving people what they needed so that they could live with God and live with his people in their own lives to unburden them. Read Jesus' life and you are amazed at how hammered he was with so many needs everywhere he went. And yet he gave off this vibe that said it wasn't a burden to him. That he loved being with people. Loved helping them. And people picked that up. They knew he wanted them, so they flocked to him. They crowded around him, talked with him, asked him questions, asked him for his help, shared their deepest concerns with him. They sensed that even with everything else that he was doing, that he would make time for them. Because he wanted to make time for them wanted to be with them wanted to help them sensed his love they could taste it feel it and they wanted more of him they wanted more of someone who had this kind of joy who would spend his life on behalf of others when you are worn out from serving when you don't want to serve one more time when you feel like i do at times go back to jesus and ask him if he'll serve you again Yes, ask him to forgive you for not wanting to serve, and he will, but ask for more than that. Ask him to love you again so that you know it. Ask him to experience that love, not just in your mind, but in your heart, to give you a taste of the joy that he has in you, to feel what the people around him felt, to feel what Paul felt, that that so filled him that even with everything else taken away from him, he still had so much inside that he could gladly think about others and serve them. If Jesus went to the cross for the joy of having you, do you think he'll be any less joyful to serve you now, now that he's got you? Any less joyful to love you when you ask? When you're worn out by people, what do you need? You need to experience this Jesus. You need to be filled up by him. And when you experience that love and life, no one's going to be able to take, stop you from taking your place in his family. Using every last bit of your energy so that someone else can get just a little bit of what you've already had. Lord Jesus, what you have promised us is beyond our ability to realize. Lord, you've promised us life and we just buzz right through that. We don't consider, Lord the resources of heaven that you have opened up for us that you are ready at a moment's notice to pour out into us Lord that you do even when we're not looking for you to do it thank you that you have not left us alone thank you that you have brought us into your family thank you that you've given us meaningful things to do in your family we pray Lord that you would empower us richly by your spirit by your grace to take our place with you as you sit next to the throne of your Father.